feel like my life's a little off kilter. My chair's on the wrong side, and I forgot to put deodorant on this morning, so all I had in my truck, don't ask me why, is lady speed stick. I smell a little bit like a woman, and so I'm... uh, I'm not, everything's going a little bit sideways on me today. So, in fact, I keep catching myself off guard. I walked over here, I was like, smells like a girl up here. It's me. So, um, that's going to be all my fault. So, I don't know what the deal was. I walked out of the house, and, and I don't know why I have a lady's speed stick in my truck either. I haven't figured that out. not real sure what's going on there. But there's one in there, so I'm going to keep it there in case I ever have another emergency like I had today. You know, we are actually... Um, into week 11 of our study in the book of James. And uh, we took a little break and we were doing, went to Guatemala and then we had uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. But we are back into this uh, kind of verse by verse exposition, really, this study of James as we unpack verse by verse and word by word. And we look at what James is really giving instruction for for the Christian life. And the concept was really born out of the idea that James is challenging believers to step beyond the mediocrity in their life. To step beyond the middle ground, the habitual relationships that just sort of go through the motions of of the Christian life and instead step into the life that God was truly calling for them. The difficulties that that meant and the challenges that that, that they would be faced with. And and it really resonated with me while I was reading this book because I was going, man, my life, I feel like so often is spiritually in the middle. It's, It's not here or it's not there, but I know that I'm not living all that God has for me and I'm just tired of living kind of a mediocre Christian life. And so I started just sort of thinking about what if the Christian life that we were called to was really one of authenticity, one that said, Jesus, you can have all of me. So we sort of started this series 11 or so weeks ago, kind of looking at it through that lens. And we have marched all the way up through chapter four. We finished four, uh, four, one through six last week. And today we're going to get through a whole three verses. So, you know, we are on a lifelong journey through the book of James. But Today continues where we left off last week. And if you weren't here last week, uh, yeah, you were serving in the City Rescue Commission. Quick note, we have another team of nine that's down there serving lunch today. So we want to think about them while we're in worship. That while we're singing and, and studying God's Word, they are very much engaged in worship down there as well. Uh, we've been serving lunch every, every Sunday, March, then in April this month. And our last team goes down there next month, and so, or next uh, week. So very exciting stuff. But they're down there serving. And so if you missed last week because you were down there or you just weren't here... Um, we really did something significant. And if you weren't here, I really challenge you to stop by the website and listen to that message because here's what, what I really believe about those verses we read last week. I believe they're world changers. That I believe if we really paid attention to the words uh, that James is writing, really read those things strongly and listened to what he's saying, we really could save our marriages. We could save our relationships. We could, we could really change our relationship with Christ. Because what we learned through this sort of bickering and quarreling and fighting and selfishness that was driving at the center of some of these Christian circles was that it wasn't someone else's problem. It wasn't the church's problem. It wasn't, you know, my wife's problem. It wasn't my kid's problem. It, it was me. And I had a problem, a sinful problem that was cha- causing me to have a love affair with the world. And what James said is that when we live in sin- selfishness, when we live in quarreling, we live in bickering, when we live thinking that our motives should be about me and about what I should get, we are adulterers. He says that we are having an affair with the world and we are breaking the heart of God. So what that means is that our sin isn't just simple actions that we do wrong. It actually is an affair with the world and we break the heart of God. We have taken another lover. And they're very profound verses. So if you, if you haven't listened to that, I challenge you to go back and do that. And we're going to pick up on the tail end of that. 
James has sort of laid out this problem, and now he's going to give us the solution of redemption. He said, listen, you have, in, you have engaged in this sort of infidelity with your heart. You have fallen in love with the world. Your motives are bad. You're selfish. You're fighting. You're quarreling. And he is talking to Christians, first century people that have given their life to Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you have fallen into a pattern of the world. You have taken another lover. And now he's going to show us this week the pattern of redemption. So what does it look like? to have a passionate relationship with Christ. And maybe this morning you're sitting here saying, you know what, I, it's been a long time since I could describe my relationship with Christ as passionate. Like just fire burning inside me kind of passion. You know, maybe it's been a kind of going through the motions thing or, or maybe it's just, maybe you've never entered into a relationship with Christ. This morning James is going to paint the picture about how we can step into the redemption of Jesus Christ in a very authentic way. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to uh, James chapter 4. We're going to be picking up in verse 7 this morning as we sort of uh, continue this study together. So before we do that, let's take a moment, let's just pray, let's ask God to illuminate our hearts and teach us. We know that we won't ever be able to gain anything from Scripture unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So let's let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. God, I thank you that, um, I thank you that you love us. God, I thank you that even though we are a sinful, broken people, you give us a path of redemption through Jesus Christ. And that path was carved out for us on the cross. And I thank you this morning that this is not a hopeless message, but it is a message of ultimate hope. God, I pray that you would meet with us this morning and teach us the simple truths of the gospel that maybe we've forgotten. And help us renew a love affair with you. Just take a moment in your own heart and, and just whisper that. Just ask God, and even if you think this is just kind of strange, just ask God to help you fall in love with him. Just ask God to help you fall in love with him. Pray for someone behind you or in front of you, just somebody around you, pray for them. I always say, be in the habit of praying for other people. Just pray for somebody to have an encounter with the Lord this morning. Lord, we are so grateful um, for your grace that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Help us understand the path to redemption and step into a love affair with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So reading scripture in context is really, really important. Uh, We can't just proof text, which just means take a couple of verses here and and somehow apply them to our lives. We have to understand kind of uh, scripture in in its context. So I'm going to read... The, the verses we went through last week, because they illuminate where we're going this week. Okay, so we're going to read 4, 1 through 6, but we're going to spend our time in 7 through 10 this morning. But I want you to hear it, because it, the sort of picture that James is painting really only makes sense when we really understand the problem that we're talking about. Chapter 4, James says, What causes the fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill, you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that your friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the Spirit... He caused to live in us, envies intensely, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. So on the heels of those verses, this is what we're going to spend time in the day. Listen, James has just painted this problem, this struggle. I laid it out for you earlier. This is what James says. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So last week we really carved this picture out of there's a struggle happening in the church. And these are believers. These are scattered Jewish Christians with some Gentiles mixed in. And and they are living life together. And James is writing this letter and he's saying, listen, there are fights and quarrels among you. Why is that? And he goes on to explain because it's a war that's being waged within ourselves. It's happening within us. Our motives are wrong. Our hearts are wrong. We have made a friendship or an adulterous relationship with the world, and we are cheating on God because we have chosen sin and chosen the world over him. Right? And so he lays this problem out, and I know that that it's an intense thing that we talked about last week about our love affair with the world. But most of us don't look at our own spiritual lives that way. We think that sin is just sort of something that we do wrong, but really sin breaks and grieves the heart of God. And so we're to understand this path of redemption, this sort of simple, short kind of picture that James lays out. We have to understand the reality of our infidelity. And when we use the words like infidelity, adultery, when we're talking about sin and talking about our relationship with Christ, I think what James is doing is he's adding very significant kind of reality things to those words. Because a lot of us don't want to come to grips with the fact that sin is a real problem in our lives. We think that sin is just kind of something that we do wrong or mistakes that we make. Or, or maybe you've been raised in a way that says, look, people are inherently good. And we've heard a lot of preachers or a lot of kind of misguided authors with kind of misguided spiritual motives tell us that sin, that people are inherently good and sin is just sort of the way that we mess up. The problem is it's a lie. Scripture tells us something different. Scripture tells us that people are totally and utterly a mess. That we are sinful to the very core. That there is nothing good within us that we are dead and dying scripture tells us that we are absolutely dead in our sin dead in our sin the truth is is that we have to come to grips with the reality of our sinfulness and our sinful nature before we can understand our need for redemption Something happened this week that really illuminated my kind of picture of sin and death a little more. And some of you know this story, and I'm just going to share it with you quickly because it is an important one. But we have this ministry that we do in the park that's really an extension of our church, right? It's an extension of of, of what we do. It's a Wednesday Bible study. A lot of us here are involved in teaching that or preparing lunch. We've been meeting down there for almost two and a half years. We've studied all kinds of books of the Bible. We've developed really important relationships with people. A lot of those people are homeless. A lot of those people live in poverty. Some of those people just kind of live in the area. And, and we had a couple of guys that were with us from the beginning, and, and some of them you've met, they've been in church here, but we found out last week that one of our kind of, we call founding fathers, I mean, he has been there since the beginning, Jimmy Lee Moore, um, had been in an accident and was killed. He was crossing the street over off of uh, 24th and um, class, and he was struck by a car. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that Jimmy's life was a mess. I knew Jimmy really well. Jimmy was an addict. Jimmy was an alcoholic. Jimmy was chronically homeless. We tried and tried and tried to get Jimmy off the streets. In fact, some of us here uh, went to him in the middle of a blizzard, snowstorm a year and a half ago, begged him to go into his shelter. Jimmy wouldn't do it. 
He was stubborn. He had a lot of demons, a lot of issues. Everybody will admit that. But we knew Jimmy really well. And while we all knew Jimmy was on a path to death, it really struck us this week when we found out that Jimmy had died. We had been missing him for about a month. People were starting to get concerned. His camp was still there. Wasn't like Jimmy at all. Called down to the medical examiner's office. Thomas spent some time trying to figure this thing out and found out that Jimmy was involved in an accident and was killed. Started thinking about what I do with my emotions over this thing because we knew Jimmy was dying. I knew he was going to die. We all knew that. He was an addict. His life was riddled uh, with disaster. And he wouldn't take any help, didn't want it. But Jimmy died alone, even though he had family. And he died homeless. And for a month, his body is laid in the medical examiner's office with no one to claim it. And I was thinking through what I do with those emotions, and uh, I was recalling back to a conversation I had with Jimmy, oh, it was about a year ago. Um, I was sitting down by his, he had a little camp that he had that was down off class, or down off uh, 23rd Street, and I was sitting on this little concrete center block, and we were talking, and Jimmy was, uh, he was a uh, character of, of highs and lows. When Jimmy was doing really well, uh, he was happy and joyful and just, he was sort of, I don't, we may have a picture of him, you can see if you may remember, but um, happy and joyful, right? Now, Jimmy's the one, that's Tom on the left, just FYI. <laughs> Jimmy's the one with all the leftover lunch, right, in his right arm, so. Um, in fact, some of you may remember Jimmy, he stood in the middle of the street one time waving traffic in for us, uh, and so, but Jimmy was, the thing about Jimmy is that he was extreme highs and lows. When he was doing well, he was joyful and excited and happy, but when Jimmy was doing poorly, he was sad and broken and depressed. And I remember this one day, I, I was sitting by Jimmy, it was in the winter. He was under all of his blankets um, where he just sort of stayed warm. And he was just sort of talking to me out through this little crack. And he always called me Pastor Treb Prater, in case I forgot who I was. And uh, he, said, he said, Pastor Treb, I am dying. And I said, no, nah, I know. I mean, I knew he was dying. And he said, no, I mean, inside I am dying. And, and I thought at the time I knew that, but as I, as I was thinking back this week and thinking about the, that conversation, I thought there's a real connection between sin and death. Scripture talks all about it, but very seldom do we really pay attention to it. That Scripture paints this picture between the sin in our lives and physical and spiritual and emotional death. And most of us don't pay attention to that reality enough to realize that the sin in our life is killing us. It's killing us spiritually, it's killing us emotionally, and it's killing us physically. Literally, it is killing us. Now, you may not be a crack addict, right? You may not be uh, wrestling with, with some kind of sin that is physically like deteriorating your body like a drug or alcohol addiction, but the sin in your life, make no mistake about it, from a spiritual standpoint, is destroying you. And we have to understand that what James is saying is the infidelity, the sinfulness in our lives, the fact that we are choosing the world over God and we are engaging and living in sin is destroying us. And it is very real. And the verses we look at today are a pattern and a picture of a progressive redemption that comes when we truly understand the gospel. But we can't understand the gospel until we understand our sinfulness. Perhaps the most important concept in all of scripture is understanding of sin. Because until we understand that the behaviors and the decisions and the ways that we are living are destroying our lives, and it may not be leading you to a path of, of a physical brokenness, but it's going to lead you to a path of emotional and spiritual brokenness, are very real. So this is what James says. James says, 
then submit yourselves therefore unto God. So we're living in this, this reality of sin. He says, submit yourselves to God. And this is sort of a progression that James is going to take us down. So submit ourselves to God. You know, the word submission really just means to surrender yourself to the power or will of another. Okay? But we really think submission doesn't quite mean that. We think submission really means giving in. So like we've all been engaged in an argument. Maybe it's been with your spouse or with a relative or with someone at work. And and you're engaged in this argument and you're deadlocked. And so we think that to submit means, well, I'm just going to give in because, you know what, it's not worth the argument. I'd rather be about the peace, and so I'm kind of not willfully going to do it, but I'll just say, look, you win. You win. And we submit. All right? And we apply this to our spiritual lives as well. We look at the Lord and we say, you know, I'm, I'm fighting for control with you over this thing. But I know that Scripture calls me to submit, so I, I'm just going to take this thing and I'm just going to give in. I, you can have it. I'm done fighting over it. And we think that somehow that is going to bring about a a freedom in our lives. But giving in, or that picture of submission, is really not what submission is at all. Submission is surrender. Surrendering will, our lives, to the will or power of another. When the Bible tells us to submit our lives, it literally is calling for us to surrender our entire lives. Think about it in this standpoint. If you were a bank robber, okay, and, and you rob, well, hopefully some of you got going, dude, he's talking right to me. Like, let's say <clears throat> you're a bank robber, and you rob this bank, and you are running around with that bag full of money, and you got your gun and your ski mask and all those things, and you are, are out here doing this, and, and, and you get caught, or you finally are tired of running, and you give up. The police have you surrounded, and you decide that you're going to surrender. You don't just get to hand the money and go over, okay, I give up. Here's the money. Look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm done running, I shouldn't have done it, but I'm going to keep my gun and my ski mask, I'm just going to go on home. Right, that doesn't happen. Right, the police say, no, you're going to give us that, and you're going to give us that, and we're going to take you to jail, because when you surrender, you give up your whole life to the will of the power. You realize that what you're living in is a mess, and you let go. But see, most of us, we don't want to do that with the Lord, because we are battling for control. We talked about it with our series in Jonah, out of control. Remember the whole deal, battling God for control. And I can promise you will live a restless, peaceless life as long as you try and just give in parts of your life to the Lord. James says, submit to God. In other words, surrender to the will and power of the Lord. Throw your hands up and say, look, I'm done running. I'm done fighting you for control. I give up. I want what you want for me. The first picture of redemption, stepping out of that infidelity, developing a love affair with the Lord, is to give up your life. It's not about fixing things or stopping doing this or getting off that or stopping drinking or stopping doing drugs or stop talking this way or stopping that one behavior. The first step is to say, Jesus, I need you and I give up. I give up. I surrender. And most of us that have our lives pretty well put together, you know, we, we've got a house, we've got a couple of cars, we've got a really good job, our kids seem to be well. Surrender is not in our wheelhouse. Control is in our wheelhouse. Surrender is for someone like Jimmy who's broken at the end of his rope. He needs to surrender. The reality is that you and Jimmy and I, we all have the same problem and the exact same need. Get over it. We all need Jesus. So James says, submit yourselves then to God. Listen to the second part. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A lot of us have a fundamental problem too with this verse. And that is, 
we don't really like to admit that the devil, Satan, the enemy, is real. We have created a metaphorical sort of picture of evil that paints a picture in Scripture that the devil, the enemy, Satan, name it what you want to, is how Scripture talks about bad things. And we have been told that in some of our mainline churches for a long time. The truth of Scripture, and it's very specific and very implicit, is that Satan is real. And he roars around literally like a prowling lion. John 10.10, the enemy, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You cannot resist what we fail to admit even exists. There is a spiritual war being waged over your life, make no mistake about it. The temptations and struggle you face are at their very core spiritual in nature because the devil wants to do anything he can to steal your joy, steal your eternal assurance, steal your confidence, steal the life that God has promised you. He will do everything and he has power to destroy you physically and spiritually and emotionally. And he will do everything in his power to steal your life. Now, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, Scripture is very clear on the fact that Satan has no power over your eternal destiny. However, he can take away your gospel effectiveness. James says, listen, part of this process of redemption is resisting the enemy. We have to realize that this is a very real thing. Nobody likes to preach about it. We don't preach about sin. We don't preach about death. We don't preach about the devil because it's a real downer. We want to tell you about how your life's going to be good if you do these three things. But I'll tell you this, every time you allow the enemy to have a foothold in your life, every time you give him power in a circumstance, every time you allow yourself to live into that infidelity, that temptation, you are allowing the enemy to win parts of your heart and your life. And there is a spiritual battle that is being waged over you. Some of you are standing in the middle of it right now. You feel like every part of your life is torn in different directions. I can promise you it is a spiritual battle in nature, and the devil is trying to destroy your life. Resist the devil, and what does James say? And he will flee from you. You wonder why you're living in struggle, constant temptation, and infighting, and all these things. You wonder why all those things are happening. And then ask yourself this, am I truly resisting the things that I know to be spiritually kind of at war in my life? Or am I welcoming those temptations? And I wonder why these things keep happening. Maybe it's time in your life you took a stand and said, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to resist the temptation, the struggle that I have to do this thing. This behavior, this action, this set of words, this decision to live this way ethically or morally or whatever it is for you. God, I know the temptation for me is to do this. To push you back, to fight you for control. Do you know that is a spiritual problem in your life? The enemy wants to tell you that you can control. You can still run your life. Look, you don't need to give all that over. Those whispers are lies and they are from Satan. You understand that? These temptations are the enemy whispering to yourself, saying you don't really need to give it all over or stop completely. You know, just get control over it again. If I can just do these things, then it'll all work out. That's Satan trying to tell you not to surrender your life to the will and power of God. So James says, resist the devil and he will do what? Flee from you. When you resist the devil in the name of Jesus, he wants no part of that. 
James says he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. The better translation really is draw. It's a, it's a Greek word that implies more than just a physical movement. So coming, it really implies drawing, which is more of a, of a sort of all of myself. How does a believer draw near to God? Prayer. Draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Prayer is our personal, intimate communication. It is the most intimate form of communication we have with the Lord. How is your prayer life, really? Is it just something that takes place at mealtime or bedtime or when you need things? Or when people ask you to pray for things? Or is your relationship with God, is it fostered in this prayer? Most of us are prayer people that pray when people need things. Lord, help this person with this. Lord, my, my, my brother's struggling with this, or my mom's dealing with this, or, or, or my work people need this. But very few of us come before the Lord and go, God, I just want to know you. I just want to sit in your presence, and I want to pray because it's my avenue to draw to you and to have you draw to me. See, prayer brings our whole entire person, body, soul, mind, into relationship with God that has allowed us to access him through Jesus Christ. I can promise you this, that if you're standing in the middle of a life that is frustrated, passionless, if you're standing in the middle of a life that's a struggle, if you're standing in the middle of a life that has lost its fire and its passion, if you're sitting in the middle of a habitual church life, if you're lost, fearful, anxious, or broken, any of those things, I can almost promise you that your life in prayer is almost non-existent. Or kind of a checklist of habitual things. Praying before every meal will never draw you closer to Christ. But bearing your soul to the God that made you will. A lot of times we think that coming near to God means that I've got to do this. Okay, God, so I have to take these physical steps to go to church and read my Bible, and I come to you and you will honor that. The truth is, is that coming near to God, drawing near to God just means, God, I've surrendered my heart. I'm going to resist that spiritual kind of battle in my life, and I'm going to draw near to you in prayer. I'm going to draw near to you, and when I do, the floodgates of that relationship open wide. James says that when we draw near, when we pray, when we access that relationship with God, God draws near to us. God wants our heart and surrender. He wants us to fight for it. He wants to rescue us and he wants to redeem you. But we are a programmed people that think about we're results driven and so I have to do certain steps and certain things to access God and it's not true. God just says, bear your heart, draw near to me. Pray. Pour your soul out. Submit, resist, come near or draw near to me. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. James says, look, this is pretty simple. He says, wash your hands and purify your heart. You know what he really is referring to? He's saying, stop living in sin. Decide you're going to repent and live a different way. Now, doing this alone doesn't get you any closer to God. That's why James says first, surrender your heart to Christ. And then down here a little later, he says, then cleanse your hands and purify your heart. Because once we have surrendered our hearts to God, there are certain things that we need to do in response to say, God, I need to purge my life of this garbage. I need to purge my life of the sin. It's not just enough to say, God, I surrender to you, and then try and live these things over here. But I've got to say, God, I surrender, which means walking away from this old way of life. 
And I love the imagery that James uses because he says, clean your hands. Have you ever really worked in a yard or really worked on a car, right? Got you that, that grease on your hands that seems to get under your fingernails or whatever it is. And you've got to stand over the sink with that bar of soap and you have got to scrub Sometimes cleaning our lives means I have to make some incredibly difficult decisions about walking away from some relationships that are killing me. I have to scrub my hands. I have to scrub the garbage out. It means I have to make some drastic steps. It says I can't live in this environment any longer. I can't keep spending time with these people. I can't keep doing this, looking at that. Whatever that pattern is or struggle is for you, I've got to clean my hands. Then James doesn't leave it there because it's not enough to clean your life. He says you've got to purify your heart. See, sometimes we scrub our hands and we look all pristine on the outside, but on the inside, that same thought, same pattern, same sin is destroying our hearts. See, purification and cleansing doesn't just happen on the outside. We like to think it does. That's why we all dress up so really great for church and we hold hands with our kids and we act like we have it together. But on the inside, we just feel empty and broken. James says, clean your, sometimes you've got to clean your hands and your heart. But it only comes after we surrender to Christ. You cannot clean your life enough. You cannot purify your heart enough. It will not happen until you surrender to Jesus. And Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to make patterns and decisions with his strength and his power where we purge our lives. And I think as Christians, we don't do near enough purging in our life. We try and ignore, we throw up blankets and cover things up. You know, got the, the friends coming over, she shove everything in the closet. You wonder when you open the door again, why it all comes piling back out. Sometimes you got to take that stuff and you got to drive it to the dump and leave it. But James says, clean your hands and purify your heart, right? Then he goes on to say this. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, I love this, and I know that this is really hard to grasp, so stick with me. James says, grieve, mourn, and wail, all right? Change your laughter, right, to, to mourning. This isn't really the sort of joy the Lord worship you're really hoping for, like, you know, God makes it all better, high-five me. He says, listen, grieve, mourn, and wail. Stop laughing and start mourning. Now, why would James say this? And I find this really important, and I, and I really like it, because I think that our sin, I think very few of us, let me put it this way, I think very few of us are really broken by our sinfulness. But when we really realize that our sinful nature is, is like having an adulterous relationship with the world, when it is breaking the heart of God, when we are absolutely dead and dying, when we really realize that the sin in our life is, is real and that we are in desperate need of a Savior, it should grieve our hearts. When you continue to live in that pattern of destruction, it should break your heart. But somehow we've turned our Christian subculture into a sort of sin-ignoring kind of a happy glee club. But our sin should break our hearts. And James says, grieve and mourn and wail and quit laughing and acting like your life is great. And realize that your mediocre Christian life should destroy your joy. It should make us go, God, I hate this. I hate that I can show up for church and play these games and wear these masks and nobody knows who I am. And I am sad and I am broken and I am hurting. And God, I hate it. And James says, grieve it. 
mourn and wail. Our sin should break our heart. The sin in the life of others should break our heart. It grieves me so deeply to know that for two years I loved this guy who was a crack addict and he is dead and I do not know where Jimmy is. And I would love to tell you that I had a confidence in Jimmy's eternal security. I can tell you this, Jimmy talked a lot about the Lord and I can just trusting that God knew his heart. That's my only hope. But it grieves me. That sin is so real and that the enemy, Satan, had so captured his life that he was hopeless. But that's not just for Jimmy. It grieves me that my life falls into the same patterns of sinful behavior, sinful thinking, selfishness. It grieves me that even after God frees me and redeems me, a week later, two weeks later, whatever, I find myself in the same pattern. That should break our hearts. And so James says, grieve and mourn and wail, right? Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. But then, but then, listen to this. Listen to what James says. This is how he ends this little section. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So we bring ourselves to a place of surrender and resisting and cleansing and purifying and drawing near and being broken and then what happens when we are finally laid out before the lord what does he do god god not you will lift you up see we are americans and we are lift your stuff up your bootstraps get up dust it off rub some dirt on it kind of people which actually hurts us from a theological standpoint because from a spiritual standpoint we could never lift ourselves up so we try and we fail and we try and we fail. And scripture says, when you come to a place where you're willing just to be done, surrendered and laid out before the Lord, grieving and mourning and wailing and broken, who lifts you up? But the God that made you. We humble ourselves. And humble just doesn't mean like, oh God, you're great and I'm not and, and, and you can go first and I'll go second or whatever. Humble really just means going, compared to your majesty and your glory and your amazing nature, and my sinfulness, I don't even deserve to be in your presence. And it breaks me. And then God, in his infinite grace and love, lifts you up, picks you up, redeems your life. God does a redemption, redeems your life, and brings us, as, as the psalmist says, from the pit. So if you are trying to desperately get your life put back together, you are going to fail. But if we can come to a place where we recognize our infidelity, surrender our lives to the Lord, resist the, the devil, draw near to God, let our sin break our heart, and let God redeem us and restore us. This is God's work, not yours. That is the picture of redemption. It's the gospel in a nutshell laid out in Scripture. And I know that several of you this morning may be sitting here going, Trevor, for the very first time, I'm really coming face to face with my rebelliousness, my sinfulness. I realize why the pattern of my behavior is what it is. Some of you are sitting here saying, man, I've been in church all of my life. All of my life. And I've never been broken over my own sin. In fact, I've never really cared. This morning, as we kind of close our time, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ, maybe for the very first time. Maybe to give your life to Jesus for the very first time, to say, I recognize my sinfulness, I recognize my need for a Savior. And Treb, I've showed up at church all these years, and I, I don't know that I'm a Christian. 
I don't know that I have an eternal assurance in my life. I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can honestly say I'm walking with Christ. And maybe for some of you, you've come for 11 weeks and you've heard us talk about this sort of uh, mediocrity, this passionless sort of habitual Christian life, and you're so tired of it. Maybe today it has to end. Maybe today is the day that we say, Jesus, I, I'm starting over. I'm humbled, I'm broken, and I need you to lift me up. As we do that, I'm going to invite Don and these guys to come back up, and we are going to just take a moment and pray. And I'm going to walk you through a little process where if you want to surrender your life for the very first time to Jesus, we're going to give you that opportunity. And if you need to just take a moment and ask God to renew you, restore you, redeem you, and we're going to give you that opportunity too. But when we come face-to-face with a gospel as real as this, we have to deal with it because it is a world changer.